So this morning we're continuing our series, Israel and Palestine, where we're looking at the current conflict uh, between Israel and Palestine, the two ethnic groups, and what we should consider as followers of Jesus. Now, this is the second week of our, our, of our series, and so to provide a very brief history uh, so that we're all on the same page, this is what's happening in Israel and Palestine. You might have heard it on your headlines, you might have seen it on your social media threads, but in Israel and Palestine, this is a conflict that's been uh, occurring for the last 70 years over that land that was split between them in 1948. Uh, and before 1948, Israel was not a country but many wanted to create a national homeland for the Jewish people because they've experienced discrimination throughout all of history. And so following World War II, during the Holocaust, where millions and millions of Jewish people died, um, again, there was a big push of like, hey, we need to save the Jewish people, and so let's give them a homeland to establish a country. And so they gave them this land that was before 1948 known as Palestine, and they split it into areas uh, where Palestinians lived in and where uh, Jewish people lived in. Since then, since 1948, when Israel was recognized as a country by some of the world and now by most of the world, uh, there have been numerous wars. And there have been multiple attempts of peace, but there has been no solution. And so on October 7th of last year, a Palestinian group called Hamas attacked Israel, killing over 1,200 people, and Israel responded soon after by declaring war on Hamas. Last week, I shared how American evangelical Christians, a tribe that we belong to, that we are part of, how American evangelical Christians are involved in this conflict because many push for pro-Israel policies based on literal uh, interpretations of the Bible, specifically passages like Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, which is this. Uh, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And so this is God talking to Abraham, and Abraham was promised that he would be blessed with the land, um, and that land modern day is Israel, and so it was biblically Israel and modern day Israel now. And so a lot of Americans are like, hey, we need to support Israel no matter what, because the Bible says if we don't bless them, then you know we're not going to be blessed, and if we curse them, we're going to get cursed. And so, again, evangelicals, the tribe that we are part of, believe it's our godly duty to support Israel, the Jewish people, so that we receive God's blessing, so that we can fulfill biblical prophecies, thus causing Jesus to return. This current conflict, though, has presented some ethical issues that I think causes us to pause and consider what support should look like. Some fear, and, and this past Sunday, past Monday marked the 100th day of the, the, of the war, some fear that Israel has crossed the line of defense to genocide, even facing accusations from specifically South Africa at this point. Israel's actions against Hamas have become alarming with what appears to be a disregard for civilian casualty. And so to tease out Palestinian Hamas a little bit, Palestinian are the people. Hamas are Palestinians. They are from Palestine, but they are a radical terrorist group with political beliefs that their uh, duty is to, to regain all the land back by any means necessary, even violence. Um, 
so Israel has responded to this by, again, declaring war. And again, there's just been what appears to be a, a huge disregard for, human, uh, for civil, civilian casualty. And so recently, Wall Street Journal reported that between October 7th and mid-December, Israel dropped about 29,000 bombs over Gaza in 45 days. Headlines report that early in the conflict, 6,000 bombs were dropped uh, across six days. Now, if we compare that to any recent wars uh, of the most bombings, back in 2019, the U.S. dropped a record of 7,400 bombs in Afghanistan in the year. And so back in 2019, when the U.S. dropped 7,000 bombs, that was a record. Israel's dropped 29,000 across about 45 days. I'm no military weapon expert. I don't know what kind of bombs and what damage it does. But, and, and I've been trying, trying to do my best to filter news sources as well, too, trying to find sources that are neutral. But it does feel excessive. It feels like there is a line that's being crossed. And at least for me, last week I left considering what our response should be when many other Christians are in full support of this. No matter what, we've got to support Israel, no matter what. And then we left off last week with verses like Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. If we believe in a literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that we should bless Israel so that God blesses us, if we curse Israel, God's going to curse us, what do we, how do we understand Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, which says, blessed are the peacemaker? that the peacemaker are God's children. How do we understand that verse as well, too? And so an interesting dynamic that has surfaced regarding this conflict is the topic of power and oppression. And that's going to be the topic that we're going to talk about. And so we're taking Israel and Palestine, and we're looking at it through biblical themes. And so our theme today is power and oppression. While older Americans are for Israel because they once saw Israel as a oppressed people group who were defending themselves. Younger generations generally are against Israel. They see Israel as the oppressor because they have only known Israel as, uh, they have only known Israel with power. And so contextually, they've only seen a developed Israel. They've never seen a struggling Israel. Younger generations have only seen an Israel with some of the top military capabilities who is right now mercilessly retaliating against the Palestinians. And so the question that, that I think we, we have to ask is what happens when the oppressed becomes the oppressor? What happens when you get Israel who was oppressed? What happens when they appear to become the ones who are oppressing? What happens when the victim becomes the victimizer? There are situations like this throughout our community and history, and we probably see them all throughout, um, throughout our day. We've all heard the saying that hurt people hurt people. And so we see it with sex offenders. We see it with uh, you know, abusers. We see it with, with anything that hurt people end up hurting people. It's road rage. Someone cuts you off, you're like, man, I got cut off. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to cut them off. Historically, we've seen how early settlers in America escaped religious persecution by coming to America, but then ended up persecuting the Native Americans. There was a, 
um, an experiment at Stanford called the Stanford Prison, Prison Experiment back in the 70s, uh, which was a, psych, a controversial psychological experiment where they took college students um, and they, they had them experience a two-week simulation of a prison environment. So they split these college students, all males, into two groups. Some played the role of guard, some played the role of prisoner. The experiment ended after six days because of the negative conditions and behaviors observed primarily in the groups playing the prisoner. It provided a lesson that how good people are, no matter how good they were, if they were placed with power, they can act very barbaric against others and treat others in very inhumane ways. Even among our refugee communities, it's the anti-immigration sentiments with the recent influx of immigrants over the years, which I've just been shocked by. Sometimes I hear even our own Hmong community talk about, yeah, you know, like those immigrants. And I'm like, man, we're not that far removed from at one point being those immigrants. This has also been a conversation, the oppression of the oppressors. Um, this has also been in conversations in other circles, notably, notably the Jewish community. And, and it's, it's really unique because, again, the Jewish community, Israel is considered their national homeland. And so I got a chance to listen to a podcast called The Ezra Klein Show. Um, and so here's a QR code if you want to hear it. It's, it's really interesting. So, um, so back in November 17th, 2023, there was an episode called The Sermons I Needed to Hear Right Now. So Ezra Klein, who's a journalist for the New York Times, who is also Jewish, interviewed uh, Rabbi Sharon Brous. And a rabbi is basically the equivalent of a pastor in Judaism. And so um, Sharon, uh, Rabbi Sharon Brous, who's listed as one of the most influential rabbis in America, uh, talked about this phenomenon of the oppressed and the oppressors and what that looks like in the Israel context. Again, I'd highly recommend just listening to it to get a, another perspective of what this is like. And so Klein and Rabbi Brous discussed the recent events and, and, and what she's preached about this topic from a Jewish perspective. And it focuses, again, on the Israel-Palestine conflict. She shares her thoughts about how her Jewish identity has helped inform her about the conflict. And one of the points that she touches on is the topic of power and oppression. And so Rabbi Brow shares her concerns about the extreme shift in Israel's government leaders and their thinking and, and the actions that they're taking. She feels like they have moved away from the values that are core to her understanding of what it means to be Jewish. And she does say that, you know, her beliefs doesn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't mean every Jewish person believes the same thing she believes in, but there is a population who holds to, to how she interprets and understands this. And so instead of the um, instead of following their core values that uh, that and her understandings of what it means to be Jewish, uh, instead the brute strength, the force that Israel has shown to Palestine, uh, she's arguing that the Torah or the Jewish religious book that's equivalent to our Bible, their tradition, their history of persecution, genocide, and notably their experience of exile, those are the core principles that make up their Jewish faith, make up their Jewish identity. This is uh, what she says. This is a quote from her from the podcast. This is what she says. Um, if you look at a core sacred literature, the Torah, you see that the four of the five books of the Torah are dedicated to the experience of our people, the Israelites, walking from out of degradation and enslavement and barbarity and human cruelty toward the promised land on a quest to build a just society. And that story, that core narrative, lives at the heart of every Jewish ritual, ritual every single Jewish holiday. It is at the heart of our prayer services 
There's not a morning, afternoon, or evening prayer where we don't recall the exodus from Egypt. And and it is delivered not only as a narrative, but a narrative that is tied to specific moral action, which is, you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Do not oppress the stranger. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know the heart of the stranger, and you are strangers in the land of Egypt, and you must love the stranger, protect the stranger, and that is the source of my Jewish faith. Now, the Old Testament reference that Rabbi Brous refers to comes from a few different places, but I'll read specifically from Exodus chapter 29, I mean 23, verse 9. This is what it says. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. And it's referenced multiple times in the Old Testament. And just so that we're on the same page, let me review a little bit of Israel's history. We saw it in the video earlier. I'm going to do like a two-minute version of it. And so, um, again, Jewish people today believe that they are connected to biblical Israelites in the Old Testament. So when we read in the Old Testament, we learn about the Israelites. Current-day Jewish people believe they're connected to the Israelites. Jewish people come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, with the youngest being Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery because his 11 older brothers didn't like how he was favored, and so he ended up in Egypt. His faithfulness in God while he was experiencing slavery, being a slave to, to, the, to the Egyptian pharaoh led him to become a high official to a pharaoh. Uh, during a famine, Joseph's brother comes to Egypt seeking food. After some drama, they reconciled and reunited. Joseph invites them to live in Egypt with them, where again the land was prosperous. Food, you know, they had plenty to eat. This was a prosperous time for the Israelites because they had lots of babies. They flourished as a people group. After Joseph died, a new pharaoh uh, didn't know Joseph, didn't care about Joseph, subjected all of the Israelites, all of Joseph's people into slavery, fearing that all the Israelites would overthrow him. We get Moses, who was an Israelite, who was born into slavery. He was supposed to be killed, but he was saved by Pharaoh's daughter who raised him. One day, Moses sees an Egyptian beating one of his own Israelites, and he kills the Egyptian. Afraid that he would be caught and punished by Pharaoh, he flees. He flees and he starts a new life um, somewhere else. God appears to Moses in a burning bush and tells him to free his people. So Moses goes to Egypt to demonstrate God's power, causing Pharaoh to free the Israelites. When the Israelites are finally free, God gives them the Ten Commandments to establish a community that reflects his value. And one of the laws that they are supposed to live by is to not oppress others as they've been oppressed. Essentially, it's our version of love your neighbors as yourself. And the passage that Rabbi Brous refers to, Exodus chapter 23 verse 9, is a part of a collection of laws often referred to as the book of the covenant, which includes Exodus chapter 21 through 23. And what is particularly important is that the Ten Commandments are the prelude to this law. And so Exodus chapter 20 comes before these three books full of laws. And so the Ten Commandments are considered a summary of all these laws. And then the book of the covenant, chapter 21 to 23, the rest are are ways that we apply the Ten Commandments. 
These rules were given to Israelites so that they could create a right way of living, not the abusive life that they knew in Egypt. The rule of not oppressing the foreigner falls under the social justice category that everyone deserves equal rights and opportunities to live and to be. And so this is an illustration of what it could have looked like based on the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Dictionary. And so in Egypt, the foreigners in Egypt enjoyed certain limited religious and civic privileges, and they were subjected to certain laws. And so the, the foreigners, they could offer sacrifices, but they were not permitted to enter the sanctuary unless they were circumcised. And so, again, they had rights to, to do these things. Um, they could take part in the religious festivals attended by all Israelites male. Like the Israelites, they were forbidden to work on the Sabbath and on the Day of Atonement. And like them also, they were stoned to death for reviling or blaspheming God's name. In general, there was one law for both foreigner and native, and in legal actions, aliens were entitled to the same justice as the Israelites and were liable to the same penalties. Israelites were warned not to oppress foreigners since they themselves had been strangers in the land of Egypt. Foreigners were to be loved and treated like native Israelites, for God loves them, based on Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, and watches them, chapter, uh, Psalms chapter 146, verse 9, Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. Man, what a unique experience that would be with our recent events and news about uh, even even you know down south with with um, with Mexicans crossing the border. That man, like you know, apart from all the logistics, like if, if they would would some way somehow also experience the same justice and, and laws as we did too. That's what the Israelites experienced with foreigners who were in their land. Essentially, Rabbi Brous argues that the, what Israelite is doing right now to Palestine is what the Torah tells them not to do. Even in the midst of conflict, Israel must not oppress the Palestinians because they know what it is like to be oppressed. Now, she is in full support of the rights of, of Jewish people, of the Israelites. She is in full support that what Hamas did is evil, but the step of oppressing, of, of, of showing brute force to Palestinians, that is what she's not against. Now, what does this all mean for us as Christians? Kong, you've talked about the Jewish perspective. Like, what does that have to do with us? I think it's worth us considering what our Jewish brothers and sisters have to say when it comes to our thoughts on the Israel and Palestinian conflict, partly because their Torah is also our Old Testament. Whether we support Israel or Palestine, I think we have to step, take a step back and consider what Exodus chapter 23 verse 9 means for us because it's in our Bible. Now, if you want a more Christian response, maybe a more New Testament response, interestingly, the Apostle Paul uses the same language of foreigner in Ephesians describing us, describing you and me. Grace read this earlier, and I'm going to read it again. This is what it says. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That word foreigner that Paul uses is the same word foreigner in Exodus chapter 23, verse 9. Paul reminds the believers here that at one point there was a dynamic difference 
between the Jews and the Gentiles and how they experience God's promise. And so we are considered Gentiles because we're not Jewish. We fall under the category of Gentiles. So at one point, we were far away from God's promise of redemption and restoration. But, but, but because of Jesus Christ, we were brought near to the promise. This is what the rest of Ephesians goes on. This is what it says, verse 14. For he, Jesus, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Uniquely what Paul is saying is similar to Exodus chapter 23 verse 9, saying that we were once foreigners separated from God's promises. But through Jesus, who became our peace, made us one with God's chosen people so that we can experience his promises. Now, last week we ended with peace, and today we find ourselves concluding with peace again. And I didn't plan this. I didn't design this. I was doing my study, and it led me to, to Ephesians 2, 2, 11 through 12. It's in God's word. When it comes to power differentials, when it comes to the oppressed and the oppression, when it comes to power and oppression, the solution is peace. It's even more evident that peace is the solution here this morning. And the peace that we seek isn't just the absence of conflict. It's not that, you know, we're not in conflict with each other, but it is the harmony that exists between two parties. It is the complete harmony, the relationship that they have, the goodwill towards each other, that is the harmony, is the peace that God is calling us to. Not that one side wins and the other side loses, but how can each group stop oppressing each other and instead have empathy for each other? For many of us being first gen, well, for many of us being second gen, and for some of us being first gen, we know what it, like, it feels like to be foreigner in the worlds that we are. Maybe we were picked on in our schools for being Hmong or being Mian or being, you know, um, whatever ethnicity we are. Uh, we know what it's like to be foreigners figuratively and literally, literally. Maybe we've never felt accepted in our community, in our workplace. Maybe we don't feel like we belong in our family. Maybe we don't feel like we belong in our spouse's family. Maybe you feel like you don't belong here at church if you've ever felt that, if you've ever felt out of place, I am so sorry. And I'm so sorry if you've ever felt out of place here at River Life. But my hope, my hope is that at least here at River Life, 
that we, myself included, can let you know that you belong here because we've experienced the peace that God has given us through Jesus Christ. We can empathize with those who feel like they don't belong because we know what it feels like not to belong. And so as we consider on a large scale, what does this impact? How does this impact us? When we think about Israel and Palestine, I think we have to be praying for peace. We have to be praying that instead of seeing the other brother and sister as a stranger, that we see them as a brother and sister that we love and that we care for, that we, that we, that we embrace. And so in a really practical way this morning, River Life family, I want to challenge all of us to empathize with someone here who is a foreigner to you. Empathize with someone who is a stranger to you. Would you step out of your comfort zone and would you welcome the stranger who is among you this morning? May you do this in your community. May you do this in your workplace. May you do this with your families. To not ignore the stranger, but to be kind to them. Again, we know what that feels like. But Christ reminds us that through him, we are made to be one. And pray that this oneness can be experienced between us who live near each other and for our brothers and sisters in Israel and Palestine who live far from each other and who are currently at war with each other. Pray for peace, that they may be reminded not to oppress the stranger, but to be kind to the stranger. Let me pray for us.